blessing upon it. Lord God, we come before you needing to hear, and we, we acknowledge that your word is life-giving to us, that it, it satisfies our souls, that it reveals more about who you are, and we pray that you would give us a hunger for it, ears to hear, that you would incline us to, uh, to want to listen this morning, and particularly so because uh, there are some things in your word that are difficult and frankly confusing for us this morning. And so we pray that you would enlighten our understandings, that you would soften our our hearts, that you would take away any impediments that there might be for us to to listen and to hear and to understand. We pray that Jesus would be proclaimed in this time and that your gospel would would grow in our hearts, your the love for your word and for your gospel in Jesus would continue to flourish in us and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are going to be in uh, Psalm 137. We are, have started a brief series on some psalms that we're calling Songs for Life. Uh, the psalms were written as prayers uh, and songs which formed a daily part of, of Israel's life. And they still have continued, re- continued relevance for God's people today. They help to form our expressions. Uh, they help to form responses to, to life and to God. And Psalm 137 that we're going to be looking at this morning here is about longing for home. It's about pining for a home which was lost and then waiting for it to be reclaimed. And before we, we read, as if you've taken a quick glance at it, um, and if you have it, well, you'll hear it here. There are some questions in the end, at the the end verses here of the psalm, and they're inevitable, and they are justified. And so before we we go, I have two requests that I'd like to ask of you. The first one is don't push this psalm away. Don't close yourself off because of the shock and the disgust that you might see at the end here. If you really want to understand what it says, then allow yourself instead to enter into the world of the psalm here. And then second, hold on to those questions that you have, but don't let them overshadow the whole psalm. We'll get to them in due time. So I'm going to read Psalm 137, and let's remember that this is the very word of God. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of God. There's a certain settled feeling that comes with being home. A home is the place where we fit in. It's where we belong. 
And there's an aspect of comfortability and familiarity that comes along with home. Even if you've been away from that place for a long time. Home is wrapped up with our feeling of belonging. And that's why crisis enters when our sense of home is lost. Because we no longer feel like we belong. The settledness that we previously felt is upended. And that's what Psalm 137 expresses firsthand. It's written, it's a song here written by by a people whose peace and settledness was destroyed as they were brutally ripped away from their home. And this psalm is their longing for home. And like many well-known songs that touch us, there's a historical context to the author here when, when he first penned it. The nation of Judah, the the remainder of Israel who was living in and around the city of Jerusalem was taken away from their home by Babylon. And they watched this foreign power surround their city, break down its walls, burn the citadels, burn the temple, and then ruthlessly slaughter women and children. And then those who survived then were carted off to Babylon where they were told, this is your new home. And in one sense, it may not have appeared to be that bad of a deal. Because, yeah, okay, their home was destroyed. We got that there. But get rid of those memories here. Because Babylon was actually a pretty good place to make a fresh start. This was the leading metropolis of the time. You want security? Great. It's hard to find a place that's more secure than here. You want wealth? Well, this is the most prosperous empire in the world. You want comfort? This place is going to offer better worldly comfort than Jerusalem did. This is not a bad place to make a new home. And plenty of these inhabitants then of Jerusalem, these former inhabitants, did just that. They settled in. They fully immersed themselves into Babylon and they made it their home. So that Jerusalem then only became a distant memory. It was a home lost, but a new home was found. And it began to reform who they were. Babylon was now where they belonged. But that wasn't everyone, though. There were some, there were some people, those who wrote this psalm, who still clung to the fact that Jerusalem was home, and they were robbed of it. So it says right away in verse 1, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Babylon wasn't home. Babylon would never be home. Jerusalem was home. They wept at the memory of it. Because everything around them in their daily lived experience was a reminder that they weren't home. The foreign mix of languages that was spoken around them, that was written. The customs of a different land which they had to engage in. The architecture of the city. The religious beliefs and practices. In fact, even the terrain. The the plains where Babylon lied on were so different than the hills and the valleys where where Jerusalem was. And if you're used to hills and mountains and then you find yourself on the Great Plains, you know what I'm talking about. It's disorienting. Day after day, weeping for home, remembering what that was, not belonging, and then having that sense of peace disrupted. So what was the big deal, though? Why not just assimilate with everyone else? Babylon held so much promise. It was probably the best place where you could make a life. Forget Jerusalem. Forget the past and make this now your new home. But Jerusalem, though, was the city that God had promised them. Zion was the dwelling place with God and his people. 
And so to assimilate into Babylon was to turn away then from the home that was promised to them. The home that defined every aspect of their lives because God was there with them. And then to go and instead make a new home. It was to give up on God continuing to be in, rel- in relationship with them and to put aside his promises and for the sake of what seemed to be a better promise. Making your home in Babylon would be a decision to remake your identity according to the city around them rather than according to the city that was lost and promised. And for them in all those years in Babylon, it pulled at those faithful people. Make your home in Babylon. It'll be easier. It's not so bad. No. We weep for where we belong. And this isn't it. Home is somewhere else, but we've just lost it right now. We won't find peace or settledness or belonging until we're there back. And there are aspects of their experience then that ought to resonate with us. Does this place feel like home? Does this place feel like home? I'm not talking about Santa Rosa. I'm not talking about California. I'm talking about the world in which we live. Does this place feel like home? There's obviously a sense of familiarity. We've never known anything other than this place, nor do we have really have any other context for what constitutes a typical human experience. But familiarity doesn't equal home. We're quite familiar with other places. We know how to navigate. We know the ethos of that place. We know how to appear like a local. But that doesn't make that place home. Home is the place of belonging, of feeling settled. Do you feel that in this world? Even down to the depths of your soul? Or do you long for something different? Of safety and joy that only home can bring? Even though we have all have common experiences which become familiar to us, some of, them, some of them are still the most unfamiliar of all. There ought to be a certain strangeness when we encounter them because that's how things aren't supposed to be. I'm talking about evil in this world. Futility in life. Death. Is death really something that we should be acquainted with? I mean, only to the, only to the degree that it's something that all of us will, will come face to face with. But the uncomfortable feelings that we have at a funeral only show that we're really not actually that familiar. It's like it doesn't belong. We want to correct evil in the world because it doesn't have a place here, right? Exactly. It disrupts our sense of home. The peacefulness and the settledness and the belonging of home is broken. And we long for something better. The Bible tells us that we have all lost our home. Our first home was the most perfect place. It was Eden. A place where we were so comfortable that we were naked and not ashamed. God himself was there. And we belonged with him. It was a place of safety. It was a place of abundance. It was all very good. But like Jerusalem, home was wrecked and it was taken from us. Not by Babylon, but by another foreign intruder. Sin and death, which were introduced after Adam's failure and fall. Home was taken from us, and we've been searching for it ever since. The longings that we have for home are poles and longings for what we've lost. Every time we feel alone, every time we feel unfamiliar, every time we feel like we don't belong, it's because we don't. It's because the place where we most belonged was wrecked. 
Judah is left grieving and in tears then. The songs of joy which form so much of their communal identity are more like funeral dirges right now. Their new Babylonian neighbors ask, why don't you just regale us with some of those songs from that place where you came from? Y'all have happy songs, right? But they can't. It just doesn't fit in with their situation. In fact, to sing those songs of joy in this dismal place would would be a betrayal. They can't sing them half-heartedly. They need to sing full gusto. They need to sing with some soul behind it. And if they were to do that in Babylon, it would be like they were settling like admitting that this place was now home, or believing the lie that this was now where they belonged. In verse 4 then, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We don't belong here, and neither do these songs either. But there's also a hope, because they look ahead and hope that someday they will sing those songs again, and they'll sing them in the proper place. And they do that by remembering home by remembering Jerusalem, Zion, verses five and six. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, then let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, O Jerusalem. They're They're not reminiscing about the good old days that they had back in Jerusalem. No, they are remembering Jerusalem because that's their true home. And they have faith in the promise of God to someday restore their home back to them again someday. Because they know the merciful character of God, of God who dwells there. When they remember Jerusalem, they are holding on to their identity now as God's people. And they know that he will come to their rescue again, just as he promised and just as he did over and over again. And so they hold on to their songs in anticipation of when that happens again. If they don't, then let them forget how to play and sing. Let them even be physically incapable of doing so because they would be resigning themselves to Babylon and that would mean they would be living without hope. There will come a day again when they will pick up their lyres, they'll pluck them out of the trees from where they hung them up, when they'll gather again ensemble and they'll go late into the night singing the songs of the Lord again. That's the day of redemption that they're looking ahead to. They will be back home again in Jerusalem. They aren't just looking beyond life in this this foreign land towards home. They're actually looking to God. They're looking to his promise then to restore them once again. I think like them, they weren't supposed to settle for for where they were. So also are we not to settle for the ways that we see things right now. That's not being demanding, That's not asking anything more of God than actually what he's promised. We're just simply acknowledging that this is what God has promised, that the way that we experience life right now isn't everything, and that we ought to have a longing and a groaning for something much better. You know why? Because that's what God has promised. He's promised a restoration of home. And so our faith then is looking forward then with that sense of longing to what he has, has promised us that he will bring us again into someday. We ought to have that sort of longing. And that brings us then, though, in this psalm to the the imprecation, this curse of judgment that we have at the end of this psalm. And there are questions that we have about this. And likely some of us also may even have some concerns. Because this is a horrible thing to think about. Let alone the fact here that it's in this Holy Spirit-inspired psalm. These, we have to remember, these aren't just the words of a human author, but these are also words that are inspired by God. God is behind them just as much as the human authors were. 
this might bring up some real issues about who God is. The temptation is for us to just sweep it aside or to maybe to gloss over it because we want to protect God as if God really needs protecting from his word. But I firmly believe, though, that we need to understand this in context of the whole psalm to not only make sense of it, but to also be able to sing it just as God's people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament have always done. And that's perhaps the most important thing for us to remember when we approach not only this imprecation in the psalm, but when we approach all the imprecatory psalms, and that's that Jesus sang this psalm. It's just a fact. Jesus sang this psalm. The Psalms are the songbook for God's people, going all the way back to the Old Testament. They formed an integral part of Jewish religious life. These are all, all the songs that were sang in synagogue, they were from the Psalms. The prayers that were given were from the Psalms. And that meant that Jesus sang, Jesus prayed these Psalms every day. They formed a central part of his religious life in public and in private. We might feel a little squeamish singing the imprecatory stanza of the song, but not Jesus. Jesus sang them with enthusiasm. And I'm talking about like, I'm in the car with the windows up and my favorite song is on the radio sort of enthusiasm. Because he was fully devoted to God. He, was, he sang them wholeheartedly to his father. And we might find it difficult then to read and to sing this section of the psalm. And that's understandable because it means that we're taking his words seriously. And there's still a horror that we need to confront in it. But that doesn't mean that we need to shy away. Now, before we look at the final verses, let's first understand the imprecations in general like we find in the psalms. They're more than just a simply an, an angry outburst at God or at their enemies. Yes, it's obvious they're very emotionally charged, but to just leave it as being a simple cry of anger doesn't really actually do it justice because there's a real curse that's being spoken out upon others. And that's an appeal that we just can't sweep away if we want to approach it with a real sense of honesty. But also that curse which is thrown out here isn't unwarranted. They're never spoken out of nowhere. They're always spoken with a certain context in mind for something that happened as a response to a terrible wrong which was done to them. It's the cry for justice to be done. And consider again that Jesus sang not only Psalm 137, but all the Psalms which contain imprecations. So if they're just simple angry outbursts that express rage, or if there are curses that have no warrant, then there's some real issues to face considering that Jesus enthusiastically prayed these. We can refer to the imprecation in this psalm as an emotive call for justice. It's an emotive call for justice. They are crying out to God to enact his justice, his righteous justice on their behalf in an expressive way that is proper considering the evil that was done to them. They have spent so much in this psalm remembering Jerusalem, but now they appeal for God to remember. Verse 7, remember what Edom and remember what Babylon did. It's not like God had forgotten. When it says remember here, it's a legal term. It's like making an appeal in the court of law. Remember what they did, and then they give the evidence. 
Edom's ganging up on Jerusalem as Babylon rips apart the city. And there they are off to the side, egging them on, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. But that's not all. Not only did they do nothing to stop it, they didn't mourn or weep at the destruction. They actually took advantage of the situation. The book of Obadiah tells us that they gloated. They helped to loot the city. And perhaps worst of all, they sought survivors and they chased them down to hand over to Babylon. And then Babylon, they did the most disgusting thing of all, taking the infants and toddlers of Jerusalem and smashing them against the rocks. Historically, that was what was common practice by conquering emperors in that day. So we need to read verse 9 in light of verse 8. Blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. What they do, verse 9, blessed shall be he the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's a cry to repay Babylon for what they did, dashing their children against the rocks. It's a cry for justice, for God to act accordingly to Jerusalem's enemies for the horror of what they did to them. The standard of justice in the Bible is in the Old Testament, in particular, it's an eye for an eye. The idea is a reciprocal justice. The punishment must fit the crime. And Babylon committed these atrocities against their children. Full justice requires having the same done back to them. They deserve the same for doing what they did. And that's not necessarily a cry that literally someone would come and smash their children in return. But what it is, is that full justice a reciprocal judgment that fits the crime would be done, that it would be given. And even that word blessed, right? when we think here blessed, it has all sorts of connotations for us. But the Hebrew word here in this context has the idea of being right. In other words, it's right is the person who reciprocates justice. So the heart of this imprecation is a call for justice. It's an emotive cry for justice to God that he would deal rightly with the powers that took their home from them, that committed such awful atrocities, that came and disrupted the peace of where they belonged and made their lives a nightmare. And with that, we need to remember again that Jesus sang this psalm. He sang it as the one who would ultimately deal out this reciprocal justice. He is the blessed one. He is the one who acts rightly. And he did it by exacting the justice which is fully deserved upon that which expelled us from our home and exposed us to such terror in this world. Sin and death which turned this world into a, in, from home into an unfamiliar place. In John 11, now Jesus comes to the tomb of his recently def- deceased friend Lazarus. And he arrives there at the funeral scene. He sees all the, the, the grim scene of wailing, of mourning, the tears being shed. And it says twice in John 11, in verses 33 and 38, that he is deeply moved. Now we may read that and think of in terms of sorrow or think of compassion. But the word in the original language is better understood as indignant. In other words, Jesus sees death and he sees the the disruption that it has caused upon the world and he rages against it because it isn't right. He is upset at how it has overturned everything in this place that he created to be a home and then he begins to make it right by calling Lazarus from the tomb. 
And the way that he makes it right is by executing justice upon the powers that have entered and have upended this world as home. Sin and death deserves the wrath of God for wrecking everything. And that's the reciprocal justice that's to be meted out. He came to deal with it. Death came into the world, so he came to put death to death. He came to slay the sin which has held our lives in bondage. He came to wreck with exact reciprocal judgment everything that has wrecked and has disrupted the world from its original goodness. But Jesus would also do so, not only by being the judge, but by being the one who would step in and take the judgment upon himself on the cross. He would undergo the curse in order to free his people out of curse. The cross is where he has brought us peace with God, where he has reconciled all things to himself. The promise that he made by his resurrection then is that he will make this place home again. It's time to break out the songs. It's time to pull the liars out again. Home is a real place that he has reclaimed for his people. Now, the Psalms are songs for all of God's people to sing and to express to him what's going on inside their hearts. And that includes these same longings for home as these people sang. So now, how do we then sing this Psalm's longings, not only through our words, but through our lives? How do we, how do we also express the Psalm, not only with our words from our lips, but also in how we live? Well, first, we remember that we are exiles. We live as exiles. We live in an analogous experience to that of Judah as in Babylon. We live apart from home, longing for it, but as exiles who live in a foreign land. The New Testament refers to God's people as exiles. 1 Peter 2, citizens of a different city, sojourners in Philippians 3. In fact, we're even told that we live in a sort of spiritual Babylon. And the idea that this place isn't home. In other words, we don't belong. The world as we know it here isn't everything. This world isn't our hope. It's only a temporary place of residence for us right now as we are wandering here as strangers, as sojourners, as we are living and waiting for our eternal and heavenly home. But yet we're surrounded by by calls from the world around us to assimilate into this world and to enmesh ourselves seamlessly into its values. Now, it's one thing to take part in systems and structures that are that are are associated with a place. But it's entirely different, though, to gradually buy into the way that they live, to be formed by the assumptions and the values of our temporary residence. And when we begin to get a little too cozy with this place, we slowly and often unconsciously start to lose our identity. We start to think And act more like the place that's around us rather than the place that God is taking us. And identity is tied up with hope. Yet at the same time, living as an exile or a sojourner and not belonging doesn't mean that we pull away from the world. This place is still our residence. In Jerusalem, or in in Jeremiah 29, which is which has a lot of parallels with this psalm here, talking about what what God's instructions to his people as they go into Babylon. He tells them, even though you're in Babylon and you're to maintain your distinctness, you're still to involve yourself in the affairs of the place. They were to build houses, to buy and sell, to get involved with governments. They're to engage with and love their neighbors. 
And that's a model for us too. Be involved in this place. Love your neighbors. Love this city. Love this county. But remember that this place that you live isn't truly home. The passport to God's people doesn't say Sonoma County. It says Heavenly Jerusalem. And if you don't fit in, you shouldn't be surprised. You're not any more likely to than the Jewish people did in Babylon. But that's because of union with Christ. It's not because of anything else. Because he is our life, he's our hope. This place isn't. In fact, we should feel like we don't belong no matter where we live. It doesn't matter if you would feel more comfortable moving to Boise or to Berkeley. Surrounding yourself with with people who live and think similarly to you doesn't mean that you're still going to fit in. The reality is you're never going to fit in. And you should never fully feel like you do. Because your union with Christ, which makes your true home, is something far better and far beyond just the right here. So we live as exiles. But second, we also live with what I'm calling a holy dissatisfaction. And that's holy not with a W, but holy with an H. Living with a holy dissatisfaction. Just recognizing and enjoying the glory of the world that God has imbued upon it at creation yet also being dissatisfied with how we experience it right now. It's like visiting a beautiful national park. You look out at the the majestic views in wonder, but you also notice some of the trash that's along the way. Or you walk through one of our, our, our majestic redwood forests, and then you notice how some of the giant trees and how some of the stumps in certain spots are marred with people carving their names or the names of people who they are infatuated with at that moment. The view is good. The forest is good. It's still good there. But the trash and the vandalism makes us wanting more. Makes us wanting something a little better. The world as we know it is vandalized and marred. It's full of trash. It's covered with graffiti. Even the best places, even the best moments are still tainted. This isn't how we were supposed to experience it. But the marred beauty and those faded glimmers of glory that still shine through show us the deficiency of the place in which we live. It ought to clue us in for the, as grateful as we are for this moment, for this place. There's got to be something better. We ought not to be fully satisfied with life just right now, but to live with a holy dissatisfaction which yearns for something better for a world that's defined by resurrection and new creation, not death. And so as we look out on the world, we see beauty and gladness that's promised, but we also look at it through a window that's streamed with tears. Third, I would say this then too. We gather at the embassy. We gather together at the embassy. An embassy is a place of sovereign territory within the borders of a foreign land. It provides a sense of familiarity within an unfamiliar place. Anyone who is sojourning in a foreign country may feel unfamiliar and not very much at home in that place, but visiting that embassy gives a sense of familiarity there. There's a shared identity, not only in nationality, but in language, in customs, in values, etc., etc. Yet when they leave the gates of that embassy, they're immersed again back into that unfamiliar land. Friends, the church as it is gathered together, us right here, right now, we're an embassy. Not an embassy of an earthly territory, but of the heavenly Jerusalem. 
This is an embassy of our true home in the new creation. When we gather inside these walls, we are entering into sovereign territory. This is a place where we can gain a sense of familiarity and shared identity with one another as we are united together in Christ, even as we all reside together in a foreign place. When we come together in these times, it's a foretaste of home. The spirit of new creation is present with us right now, even slowly transforming us to be in a better alignment with our coming home. It's where Jesus is proclaimed, where he's proclaimed that he's Lord, that he has given himself on our behalf of his people then to stake a claim, his claim upon them. So again, like it says, verse four, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? At this, at this moment, right now, even as we reside in a land that is foreign to us, a land that's not our home, this place right here is sovereign territory. As we gather, he is with us here in anticipation of his eternal home and glory. Home isn't just a place. Home is people too. It's people who are defined by place. And friends, we are a people who are defined by a very real place. We are defined by the right hand of God the Father in glory because that's where the Jesus who we are united to by faith, that's where he is right now. And that place is beginning to break into this world. In places just like this here as we're gathered. And we're waiting for the whole thing to then burst over the entire earth and shower in new creation just like a pinata. How can we sing? Because he's already at work right here and right now. We are an incomplete project that he's still working on. We are remembering, we are longing but we are also being reformed together here in our identities. We are being given here a taste of what's to come. And that is what forms us and that is what strengthens us together then as being citizens. Friends, as, as we sing then, it says, how should we sing the Lord's song in, in, in a foreign land? As we sing here, we do so it's because he's a God of promise. That he has promised to gather us together into where we belong to gather us into the home that we are longing for and that home that is better than anything else that any of us could ever ask or that we could ever dream of. Let's pray.